From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's census time, and this year you don't have to fill out paper. This census, we have these two new methods. You can answer the census online, you can answer it by phone. But what if you're afraid to answer? After all the talk of a citizenship question, which was scuttled, I'll speak with the head of the Census Bureau. Then, in his state of the state, the governor singled someone out. I was proud to appoint Marissa Molina, the first dreamer in Colorado history, to serve on a state border commission. We'll hear Molina's story. With the fate of DACA so uncertain, does she worry about being so high profile? And a big settlement in the case of an undersheriff accused of sexually harassing dispatchers. I'm happy with the outcome. And it does restore my faith that sometimes the good guys do win. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You might think impeachment sucks all of the air out of the room. But other government business continues, like the census, that decennial count of everyone who lives in the United States. To learn how the census will roll out in Colorado... I reached Stephen Dillingham, he's Census Bureau director. He was on the phone from rural Alaska, and I asked, why Alaska? By tradition, we go to Alaska first because while people are in a village in sort of frozen conditions, it's the best time to count some of these people before the snow begins to melt and before they go out to fish or hunt or engage in other activities. And what village is this, just out of curiosity? This is Tuxuk Bay. It's a fishing village on the Bering Sea. Okay, so you're hoping to get people while they're sort of held captive by by winter. Uh, Let's talk about the census in the context of Colorado. Remind us what is at stake with this count. Uh, Of course, the Constitution uh, makes this a civic responsibility for everybody. It's right there in the front of the Constitution, and particularly for the purposes of apportioning the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress. But the country has grown quite a bit since then, and the uses have just multiplied. Much of the funding of government is, in fact, allocated by this data, particularly the federal government. The federal government allocates more than $675 billion annually, and it uses census data to do this. And, of course, state governments use it as well, and local governments. And so the funding goes to all sorts of things, from hospitals to education systems to your roads and your highways and infrastructure. I think it's the most used data in the nation Hmm. and uh, used uh, by the private sector as well in locating businesses and economic development. Uh, It's used by nonprofits, churches, organizations, people and families. Ah, Interesting. uh, I I think so often of the federal uses, but you're saying that this actually transfers into the private sector as well. Let me follow up on a few things you said there, that this has a lot to do with congressional districts. And there's been a lot of talk about an eighth congressional district in Colorado. It may be that this census is what ushers that in, huh? So those areas of the country that are, you know, their population's increasing, some of them will, may reach the threshold to where they may earn another congressional seat and, and then another state may actually lose a congressional seat. Okay, simple question here, but I imagine that the answer is anything but. How do you make sure you count everyone? Well, the research that we did, even from the 2010 census, found that nationally there was far less than 1% of people that were not counted. You know, this census, we have these two new methods. You can answer the census online, you can answer it by phone, or you can do it the traditional way, and that is to complete the paper and mail it in. 
But we think with these new options, and our research indicates that more people are going to use an electronic option. Now, if, in fact, the people in in your community or in Colorado, uh, uh, after a number of weeks and we don't receive a response by any method, uh, we then send out the census takers or the enumerators to knock on the doors and to ask them the very simple questions that are on the questionnaire. Ah. So help me understand this. Everyone will get a paper form or someone you'll get a reminder that says, use the phone, use online. How am I prompted that it's census time? Yeah, across most of the nation, they will first get the postcard and letters, and then ultimately we will send a questionnaire to everyone who has not self-responded. You know, the American Library Association, for example, is opening its doors nationwide for the use of computers for responding to the census. You mentioned earlier the word everybody, that the census counts everybody. Uh, There was a lot of uh, brouhaha around the question of citizenship, And the census, ultimately, there is not a citizenship question on the form. But do you think that all of that attention on that uh, will mean an undercount in some immigrant populations? Well, we certainly hope not. And we're doing everything to prevent that. We're going to have a very extensive communications campaign that should reach 99.6% of our nation's population multiple times about the benefits and the ease with which you can answer the census and how secure the information is. That you, so you people, wouldn't, if you were afraid, for instance, that, it, yeah, if, if you were afraid, for instance, that filling out the census might alert authorities to your presence if you were in the country illegally, uh, for better or for worse, uh, that would not, you say, happen because of the census? Well, you know, what we explain to people is by law, by very strong federal law, we cannot use the private information. We cannot provide it to anyone, not to law enforcement, not to any agency whatsoever. So the law says we, the Census Bureau, can only use the information for statistical purposes. So that's part of the educational process. You know, people, we have the churches supporting us. We have groups of all types, national and local, ranging from the barber shop to the largest retailers. So by everyone working together, that will ensure that we maximize the self-responses. Uh, let's wrap up with uh, in the question of employment. So companies in Colorado are, some of them, f- finding it very difficult to find workers, everything from RTD to restaurants. Uh, are you able to find census workers? Are you paying enough to lure them? We are doing very well nationally, but there are some areas where we you know, really want more applicants Right now, we have about 1.8 million applicants, and we set a very ambitious goal of about almost 2.7. So we have a ways to go. You know, we're looking. We'd love to have another million people apply. Now, we will, in fact, employ between 300 and 500,000. That's a lot of people. That's the largest mobilization by government since World War II. It happens every 10 years. So, yes, we have a low unemployment, but a lot of the people that work on for the census, you know, we have retirees, we have college students that may be their first job. These are part-time jobs. These are flexible hours, and it pays well. But many people do it because they love to do it, and it is a civic responsibility, and people want to be a part of history. Stephen Dillingham, it seems like you're the one thing the Senate can agree on these days. You were confirmed by the U.S. Senate uh, in January of last year by a unanimous vote. 
Sure. And let, but let me remind you, just a few weeks ago, the same Senate, in a bipartisan unanimous resolution, supported the 2020 census. They have funded this census, and uh, we're very pleased for the support we get there. Well, the count from Sesame Street would be pleased that the nation can agree on counting things, counting people. Thanks so much for being with us, Steve. Thank you so much. Stephen Dillingham directs the U.S. Census Bureau. By the way, the pay range for a census workers in Colorado is 16 to 21 bucks an hour. Marissa Molina grew up undocumented in Colorado, and she says she often felt like she didn't belong, especially among the powerful. It's one reason she found Governor Jared Polis's State of the State address this month particularly moving. In the face of unprecedented hostility uh, from this White House towards our immigrant and refugee communities, we can say loudly and proudly that in Colorado, we stand with dreamers and with refugees. I was proud to appoint Marissa Molina, the first dreamer in Colorado history to serve on a state border commission to the board of Metropolitan State University. And I want to take a moment to recognize Marissa, who's here with us today. Marissa. Molina's parents brought her to Colorado from Mexico when she was nine. She now has temporary protection from deportation under DACA. But the future of that program, of course, is uncertain. Today, Molina is also Colorado Immigration Manager for Forward U.S., which describes itself as a bipartisan group working on immigration and criminal justice reform. And Marissa, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. Uh, This feeling that you didn't belong. The governor seems to think that you do. The board at Metro State thinks so. Have your own feelings about belonging changed? You know, I think those are feelings that I have to challenge every single day. I think when you grow up undocumented and when you grow up thinking that you don't belong and you start to internalize the messages that you've heard for a really long time about how people like you don't deserve to be in certain places, you start to internalize that. And so I think um, ever since I went to college, it's been a journey to challenge for myself what it means to belong. When do you find that you have those thoughts? So you say that it's it's daily that they come up. What what's an example of when they might be triggered? You know, there's there was a, a particular moment when I was on the um, during a meeting at the board of trustees for Metro. Um, when I was sitting there, and you know, I look around the room and I see the years of experience many of the folks on that board have. Um, and all their accomplishments. And I think, you know, I'm 27. I graduated from college about five years ago. Um, Do I belong? Do I have what it takes to be here? Um, And so I sometimes it happens in those moments. And that particular day, there was a group of DACA recipients that had come to the board um, to share a little bit about a program they are a part of. And I approached them afterwards and said, you know, I'm so happy you're here. Um, I feel seen by seeing you in this room with me. Um, And I got emails from those students saying it means so much to us that you sit at that table and that you bring our experiences and the voices um, of our families and of 
our lived experiences as students into that room. You know, I've heard this described as imposter syndrome, that feeling like yeah. you don't quite belong. I just want to share that I I feel that a lot, Marissa. So I think I think it's a very universal experience, but it sounds like it is really um, exacerbated, accentuated because you are a dreamer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, You have served on Metro's board since March, so it is still early days. But if there's one thing you want to accomplish at Metro State University of Denver, what would it be? You know, I think first and foremost, I want other students and, and other DACA recipients and immigrants to see me on that board and to remember that there is a pathway for them to be a part of this country and of this state like I am and to blaze those trails of opportunity for for them as well. And so part of it is saying, I don't want to be the first one. I just want to make sure I'm not the only one. It's interesting because Metro was recently designated a Hispanic-serving institution, meaning that its full-time student population is at least a quarter Hispanic. Just for some background, you grew up in Glenwood Springs, and then you attended Fort Lewis College in Durango. But I understand, like, even during your college years, you took great interest in what was happening at Metro. Why did you have that interest so early? You know, I remember reading um, the news when President Jordan and the Board of Trustees of Metro at the time... Yeah, this is Stephen Jordan, the former president of Metro. Yes, um you know, they took this really bold, courageous step to give um, undocumented students a different tuition category that wasn't as high as out-of-state. And they said... Something in between in-state and out-of-state tuition. That's right. Uh And, you know, at the time, the state had voted on a proposal to give in-state tuition to undocumented students, but that hadn't passed. And they said, we're going to do it if the state isn't going to do it. And so for me, um, often feeling alone in that struggle of being undocumented, I looked at the leadership of Metro and said, that's courage. That's what it means to stand up for people like me. I want to say that uh, eventually the asset bill uh, at the state level passed, allowing eligible undocumented students to pay in-state tuition. That was in 2013, I think a year before you graduated Fort Lewis. That's correct. And before you, you kind of came out as undocumented, th- that's, a, that's a process to come out to the world and say that. Would you talk to us about that? Yeah, I think as I was mentioning earlier, I grew up really internalizing those messages about who I was, who people like me are. You know, hearing words like illegal and alien and not feeling that sense of belonging in my classroom or feeling that sense of safety in my own school. And I started to have a lot of shame about my story and about who I was and what my journey was. And I had a really great mentor, a woman by the name of Sharina Trujillo Long at Fort Lewis, who I I sat in front of her and told her about my status in college because I was having, you know, a really difficult time. And she sat in front of me and she said, Marissa, let me carry the weight of what it means to take on this journey on your own. Let me hold that with you. And she said, have you ever considered that maybe you are a superhero? Because the things that you have had to overcome are not things that everybody can overcome and say they've done so successfully. And no one had ever put things in that perspective for me. So I think when she gave me that different frame of mind, I said, you know what? I am strong. 
And I know I am powerful and my story matters and I have something to contribute um, to make a difference. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and that's the voice of Marissa Molina. In the governor's state of the state address this month, uh, he singled her out uh, in calling her the first dreamer ever named to a state board or commission. In her case, it's for the Board of Trustees for Metropolitan State University of Denver. Uh, at one point, you considered dropping out of Fort Lewis when you were in college. Why didn't you? Do you think it was that conversation with with that mentor? I think it was that conversation, but I think ultimately it was also my mom. Um, my mom is a woman with incredible faith and optimism. I don't think she ever wakes up a single day without a smile on her face. And when I came to her and I said, you know, you're working so hard to help me pay for school and I'm going to graduate and I'm going to have a degree that means nothing. It'll be a pretty piece of paper framed on a wall, but without the opportunity to work and have a social security number, this means nothing. And I can't pay you back. And I said, you know, I want to leave school. And she said to me, Marissa, don't you have faith in me? And, you know, in those moments, she would encourage me to believe that this country would do the right thing by us, by kids like me. Um, And that summer when I was going to drop out of school, President Obama announced the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA, and that changed my life because I was going to leave school and now I had an opportunity to go back and finish. We're going to talk about the future of DACA in just a few minutes, but I, I wonder if you ever look back and wonder why it's you who's at this point as opposed to someone else. I think about that question all the time because I know so many young people like me who grew up without a status and didn't have the opportunities that I've had. And I don't think I'm any smarter or any more entrepreneurial than any of them. I just think that people gave me a fair shot. And so that, to me, is the reason why I said yes to being on the board of trustees, because I want to make sure other students know that you don't that you can have a shot in life and you don't have to be perfect to have that shot. Uh, speaking of a, a shot in life, your m- mother took hers and did well. She, I understand, just passed the citizenship test. Do I have that right? That's right. Yeah. Yesterday she took her citizenship test and she passed and um, it's a big accomplishment and we're really excited for her. Of course, DACA and Dreamers remain in the news. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments back in November on a decision by the Trump administration to kill the program. And, you know, depending on the ruling, I would think that there's a chance for you of deportation. First off, how concerned are you about the future? You know, I'm concerned. We don't know what the future holds, and we don't even know when to expect a decision from the Supreme Court. And so... I think I go every day to work and I think about how am I making sure that the work that I'm doing is ensuring that we protect as many DACA recipients as we can and that we lay the ground to have permanent protections for DREAMers and for the 11 million people who are undocumented. Let me just remind folks that you are also Colorado Immigration Manager for Forward U.S., which has this mission of immigration and criminal justice reform. And so it seems to me that if the Supreme Court allows the Trump administration to abandon DACA, essentially, that it would be incumbent upon Congress at that point 
to intervene and to change the law. I mean, one of the fundamental arguments by the Trump administration here is that the executive doesn't have this kind of power, that this is a bit of an overreach. Do you have confidence that Congress would rise to the occasion and protect folks currently protected by DACA? You know, I have to hold on to the hope that folks are going to do the right thing because I don't think I can keep doing the work that I do without that hope. But what I can tell you is that right now we need everyone who's ever thought it is unfair what is being done to dreamers. It is unfair that the Trump administration is trying to use them to pass these other bad reforms on immigration, to cut legal immigration. And if you've ever had that thought in your mind, like this is the time when we need our community to step up and to help us. Um, Because this is going to be a fight that's going to require every single person who's ready to take it on. Um, So we can encourage legislators to do the right thing and pass permanent protections. What do you say? You you call this the right thing, uh, continuing the protections under DACA. What do you say to folks who believe that this is a, a country of finite resources of only so much money to invest in education and, and what have you, and who say we've, we've got to focus on those who are currently citizens. What, what do you say to the folks who hold that view? Mm-hmm. You know, I think those folks probably don't understand the many different ways in which DACA recipients and immigrants in our country contribute every single day. They may very well. They may say, we understand that legal immigration has all kinds of benefits for this country, but we're talking about a different group here. You know, I think it's important for folks to remember that our immigration system is broken. And a really good example of that, right, is my family. Both of my parents are now um, U.S. citizens, and I'm a DACA recipient. Right, your father as well passed the citizenship test, that's correct? Yeah, he became a citizen this past summer. And so, you know, people ask me all the time, well, why are you still a DACA recipient, right? Like, where is that line you're supposed to get in? And the the bottom line is that line doesn't exist because our immigration system created all of these categories that have left people out like me. And so even though I have applied in the past to adjust my status, it could be up to 25 years But those numbers don't mean anything in a system that's really backlog, right? And so I think it's understanding that our system as it exists right now is broken. And you're saying that your family is a fractured version of that, a fractured example. In just the last minute we have, Marissa Molina, I understand that your, your father also gave you some pretty powerful advice as you moved forward. Will you leave us with his words in just the last few seconds? Yeah, he, my dad always told me that Um, El mundo es de los valientes. The world belongs to the courageous. And so that's the message I carry forward, that we have to move forward with courage. Thank you for being with us. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Marissa Molina is the first dreamer to serve on a Colorado board or commission. As Governor Jared Polis noted in his State of the State speech this month, she is on the board of trustees of Metropolitan State University of Denver. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. Sheriff's dispatchers in one Colorado county reported that their boss sexually harassed them, how their stories changed the department and the community. This week, Colorado Public Radio is bringing you special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial on CPR News when proceedings are underway. Access to this important, developing story is an essential part of Colorado Public Radio's commitment to keep you informed. 
During this coverage, we're also making the regular CPR News daily schedule available on HD Radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The former undersheriff of Lake County, which includes Leadville, is accused of sexually harassing three dispatchers in 2017. He was fired when the dispatchers came forward, but they say they were retaliated against. These dispatchers filed a civil suit and today say they've reached an $875,000 settlement with the county. A word of caution that this next conversation contains some graphic descriptions. My colleague Avery Lill spoke with one of the three dispatchers, Nicole Garner, and the women's attorney, Iris Halpern, also Lake County's new sheriff, Amy Reyes. Nicole, you came forward with allegations of sexual harassment against Lake County's undersheriff Fernando Mendoza in late 2017. Are you comfortable with sharing some of what happened to you? Yes, I am. Working with Mendoza was very frightening, very intimidating. Um, He was very controlling. It was a very controlled environment. There was one example of I was standing outside the glass door taking a break. Mendoza was upstairs in dispatch giving me that break. He was monitoring me on the camera and had text me to ask me to step to the right so that he could see my backside more clear. Made me highly uncomfortable. There was an issue with getting uniforms, new uniforms for dispatch. And Mendoza, when our shirts came in, Mendoza asked me to come into his office so he could inspect my shirt. And that's when he said, damn, Nikki, your tits look 3D. That was highly uncomfortable. Those are some of the bigger examples of what stands out consistently standing behind us to look down our shirts, enforcing a certain type of uniform to where our breasts would be visible if he stood behind us. I am so sorry that that happened to you. Thank you. Um, You weren't the only one dealing with this. Chelsea Parsons and Maria Chavez worked with you in dispatch. They also accused Mendoza of sexual harassment. What was the department's response when the three of you reported to another deputy? I felt supported by Deputy Paget when I spoke to him. However, after I went to the media, I think the media did a great job of putting our story out. But that's when it became more in the public opinion of coworkers at the sheriff's office. In the beginning, there was more support. As time went on, the support waned, and it was highly uncomfortable at work with our coworkers. They did not believe us. Mendoza was eventually fired, but you and Chavez still resigned. It sounds like you still felt unsafe or unwelcome at work. Yes, I did. And I think that there's some background here that might be helpful. That's Iris Halpern speaking. She's Garner's lawyer. After Mendoza was let go, there was a campaign by management at that time at the sheriff's office to marginalize and isolate Maria, Chelsea, and Nikki. So 
Emails went out to the whole entire staff to avoid speaking with them, to keep the door closed to the dispatch area and not to interact with them, to remove some of the basic necessities that the dispatchers need during their shifts because they can't leave the phone unmanned and they can't leave the table where the phone is. And so um, there's an email saying that the bubbler, water bubbler, was going to be moved out and the refrigerator, et cetera. And so the overall message that was shared with my clients was that they should have never come forward and that it was going to jeopardize their relationships and career in the sheriff's office. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a comment once when I'd asked for just a restroom break for someone to watch the phone. And the acting under sheriff told me to wear a diaper. So just getting bathroom breaks, having access to water was highly important for me to be able to do my job. And uh, the sheriff at the time, the former sheriff, said that he was going to install cameras in the dispatch room so that they would be under surveillance on their shifts. And so that's the retaliatory environment that they faced after they came forward and went to the press with the allegations of sexual harassment. How did you come to realize that all these retaliatory efforts were happening? Did it happen slowly over time or did it all come down at once? No, it started the day after Denver 7 released their media interview. And it was the small things immediately, having people not respond when you're trying to speak to them, even in the work environment. I was hung up on on the phone when I was trying to talk with deputies. I got called a bitch several times. Doors were slammed. People just refused to talk to me or talk about me when I left the room. And that's highly uncomfortable in a professional environment. Especially when you're reporting that you've been harassed. Correct. You, Chelsea, and Maria brought a civil lawsuit against the county in 2018. Now you've reached a settlement for $875,000. How are you feeling about the settlement? I feel really relieved that that I can move forward with my life. I'm happy with the outcome, and it does restore my faith that sometimes the good guys do win. And Iris, how do you feel about it? Well, um... I feel that this um, settlement is important because not only the amount of the settlement, which I think is um, important to remunerate victims of sexual harassment at work, it it impacts their lives in ways that change them forever. But I think there was a number of important things that happened once they stepped forward. So one of them is that um, the undersheriff's stepdaughter realized that she could come forward with her own uh, story. And I think that that's incredibly valuable to learn that when individuals and women step forward, uh, it can really be helping other victims in the community that didn't have the support or were too afraid to come forward when they thought they were alone. And so the undersheriff's stepdaughter came forward about her own stories of sexual assault. And there was a criminal prosecution of the undersheriff based on those allegations. And she specifically said that she was able to come forward because my clients had um, helped her realize she was not alone and that she could get support from the community with her own story. And we should say that Mendoza is now serving a 15-month sentence in jail for attempted incest and attempted invasion of privacy. Sheriff Reyes, I want to bring you into this discussion. You've been in your job for about a year now. You were elected sheriff of Lake County in the midst of the civil lawsuit against Mendoza. You hired back dispatchers who reported Mendoza's alleged harassment. 
what has it been like to rebuild the department under the shadow of reports of harassment and attempted cover-up? You know, it, it's it's been a struggle. However, um, I've gotten a lot of support from the community and from the employees at the office. They're, like you, like you said, Nicole, um, I hired Nicole back, Maria back. Chelsea had taken another job somewhere else. And my my reason in doing that is there was nothing that mitigated me from not hiring them back. Um, there was nothing in their personnel file. And I was actually honored that they felt safe enough with me that they were willing to come back. And one of the things we did see as a result of change in leadership is we had an increase in reporting of domestic violence, sexual assault, the first six months I was in office, um, even some of these were cases that had taken place previously. So that was an, um, an interesting shift to see. And are there specific steps that you take to rebuild trust in the department and in the community? I think giving employees an avenue. Um, so with the previous administration, from what I got from the employees that had been there um, during the past administration and the ones that I had retained, it was not okay to go to the county HR to seek any type of resolution. Um, that was frowned upon. And one of the, the things that I did was put that in place that that is an option because if your upper management or administration is a problem, then who do you go to? So that was an instrumental change. The other thing is I put in a no tolerance um, for that kind of behavior in our office. And when I took office, there the, some of the remaining employees that are no longer with us definitely had a, um, one of them had explained to me that she was Camp Mendoza. And I, and I told her that there was no room for that in, the, in our office. This is about being united, and we are not taking positions. Everyone's going to be safe to be there. So that was one of the behaviors that I did not tolerate. And this is such a, a difficult situation to step into, and you knew that this was the situation when you were running to be the sheriff. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about why you wanted to be the sheriff in the midst of this. Um, I, I looked at who was running and would they be able to make the culture shift that needed to happen. Um, and, and in my personal opinion, I felt that some of the people that were running, that that shift wouldn't happen. And so I decided to throw my hat in the ring. As a female living in Lake County, we, we've got to have a voice and things need to change. And I, I felt like I was had what was needed to start making that change in the culture. Nicole, I wonder, do you feel like the policies that are in place now would have protected you then? I really don't know how to answer that because the, the whole culture of the office was opposite from that. So I, 
I really can't say it was more than just the policies that were not in place. And I think that's a good thing to bring out that it's more than just procedure, that it's also about atmosphere and the relationships that are built. Is that right? Yes. Uh, You know, it's more than just about having policies in place. It's about following those policies and ensuring that the culture really does adopt those policies. You can have something written in on paper, but if it's not followed or adopted by the agency, by its culture, it's it's just words on paper. Um, Nicole, I also wonder, knowing what you know now about the retaliation you say you faced in the workplace and also the nature of a long courtroom battle, would you do the same thing and come forward with sexual harassment allegations? Yes, no questions asked. And what do you want other people who are facing sexual harassment at work to know? First off, that it is okay to stand up for yourself. It is okay to stand up for yourself. And there are people that will believe you and that will support you and help you along the process. That sometimes people that don't believe you or don't like you are more vocal about saying their things. And sometimes the supporters don't. But there there is support out there. And it is okay to put standards in place and stand up for yourself. Amy, Nicole, and Iris, thank you so much for talking with me. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nicole Garner was a dispatcher in Lake County in 2017. She and two of her colleagues reported that the undersheriff at the time had sexually harassed them. Then they say they were retaliated against. Today, they announced a settlement in their lawsuit against the county. As part of the deal, the county denies allegations of wrongdoing. More than any other professional sport, baseball is about numbers. The all-time home run leader who led the league in hitting last season... Well, today, we can say that after 27 years and 4,313 games, the Colorado Rockies finally have a Hall of Fame player. Let's listen in on a phone call from yesterday. You're speaking to him. Larry Walker, who spent most of his career with Colorado, learned he'd be inducted into the Hall Tuesday in his 10th and final year on the ballot. For some perspective, Troy Rink joins us, longtime baseball writer and Hall of Fame voter, who's also a sportscaster with Denver 7. Troy, welcome back to the program. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me on. I could listen to that phone call a hundred times and find delight in it each time. Uh, I guess important to establish, did you vote for Larry? Yes, I did vote for Larry Walker. In full transparency, he's been on the ballot 10 years. I didn't vote for him the first couple years. And people would say, well, if he's a Hall of Famer, why didn't you? Well, sometimes there's there's better players that fill the ballot. And then as they get elected, other players move up. And not long after I started voting, Larry Walker moved up on my ballot. And I've been voting for him the last several years. Oh, that's fascinating insight. So it has a lot to do with the crop in any given year. And I gather that's why you can be nominated multiple times. Yeah, as I learned when you do the Hall of Fame voting, 
it, it, it does evolve and some players, and you can put up to 10 players on your ballot. I typically have almost every year put 10 on mine and I didn't know exactly why when I first started, why that made sense. And I talked to other voters who've been doing it longer than I had. And some players you put on that, you know, have no chance to get elected those first few years, but you start the conversation around their candidacy Mm. and you get the conversation going. Remember, they're not eligible until five years after they retire. So it's not as if there's this uh, recency bias and some of them get kind of forgotten in the player they were. And so by keeping them on the ballot, if you feel they're worthy, it creates the conversation. And there's no better example of that than Larry Walker. He was at 10 percent of the vote as recently as 2014, almost fell off the ballot. And then he ends up with 76 percent yesterday. Yeah. He made 20 percent jump in each of his last two years on the ballot. That's the first time in history that's ever happened. Well, the question is why. What about Larry Walker meant that he rose each year and that uh, this time he deserved to get into the Hall of Fame? Well, it's interesting because he's benefiting from statistical analysis that didn't really really exist during his playing career. He's a favorite of the Sabermetrics community. They use a stat without getting too complicated. It's called wins above replacement. It's called war, a player's war. And that basically means how much better are you than just the, uh, the uh, a filler player they would put in who would rank it 0.0. So a war of like six a season means you're like six times better than like kind of this av- any ordinary filler player they would put in as a placeholder. And in Larry Walker's case, his war is 72.7 for his career which is Hall of Fame worthy by any measure. What the issue with Larry was the volume. So he only played more than 143 games one time in his career. And that was the issue for many voters, myself included, early in his candidacy is that he just didn't go to the post enough. He would have been an absolute lock Hall of Famer had he been healthy. Uh, and in some cases, he'd lose interest in the season in the last two, couple of weeks because the Rockies were terrible much of his career. But he benefited. How do you you ask? How did he get in? He benefited from statistical analysis that didn't really exist and wasn't used on a daily basis when he played. That he impacted the game in a shorter amount of time as some people would who were compilers over several more years than him played several more. You know, hundred. He has now the fewest hits of any right fielder in the Hall of Fame. But he did more with those hits than most anyone, and that's how ultimately he got in. And he overcame the Coors Field bias which was also part of his candidacy. He had 381 at home, 282 in all other ballparks. No Hall of Famers had that kind of discrepancy home road. But Larry Walker, you can, if you really dig into the numbers, you realize he's really good. It wasn't, he wasn't a Coors Field creation. Right. Let's just talk just briefly, very briefly about the Coors Field bias and what it means to overcome that uh, for the non-initiated, the uninitiated. Say briefly what that is, Troy. Yeah, I mean, no park in the history of Major Major League Baseball has been more advantageous to offensive players hitting than Coors Field. It does basically to your average. It adds about 20 points to anyone's average. The flip side is it's way harder to hit on the road because curveballs break more, you know, change-up dips more. So while you might hit 380, 400 at home, you go on a road trip and you hit 200. So there is a little bit of a balancing out effect. And But the Coors Field bias is, You've seen a lot of 
average to poor players come here and put up numbers, and it creates this, well, anyone could hit at Coors Field. Right, right. Well, there is some truth to that, but the truth is Larry Walker could have hit anywhere, and he's a great player. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the Hall of Fame voter, baseball writer, sportscaster with Denver 7, Troy Rink. Uh, now that Larry Walker is headed into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, Tuesday night during a press call, Walker talked about his start in minor league baseball. As I signed that contract and drove down to Florida to go to spring training and and play baseball, I I never knew really the rules of the game or much about the game, the history of the game. You know, I'm a hockey player. You grow up in Canada, you're born into hockey, and that's what's in your it's in your blood and veins. And so baseball was something I had to learn along the way. That was just fascinating that in many ways he was destined for hockey and wound up in baseball. Do you want to share just a few words about that, Troy? Yeah, he thought he was going to be an NHL goalie and it didn't work out. And there was a time in the minor leagues, this true story, where if you if there's a fly ball caught and you're running the bases, you have to go back and tag up and you have to trace your steps. So he had crossed second and third, and you have to then go back across second to get to first. He ran across the middle of the diamond because he didn't know the rules. <laughs> this is in professional baseball. and But that's how raw he was. But the one thing he benefited from by picking up baseball later in life, I've told people this, he does everything fundamentally correct. Most kids pick up bad habits along the way. Mm. Larry Walker was literally like watching a Tom Ametsky clinic video every time he played. Not only was he the most talented, but fundamentally, if you wanted to tell someone, here's how to throw, here's how to catch, here's how to run the bases, that was Larry Walker. He was a clinic every time he was on the field because in some ways, because he learned the game later in life. Troy, this has been a blast. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. You got it. Take care. Have a great show. Troy Rank of Denver Channel 7. He's the 2019 Colorado Sportscaster of the Year, we should mention. And he joined us to talk about the Colorado Rockies, including news that Larry Walker has become the first player in team history elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. An induction ceremony is set for July in Cooperstown, New York. Now a little from Walker's walk-up song, Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. Finally today, the Grammy Awards are Sunday, and we'll be watching the Best Folk Album category. The winner could end up being Colorado's own Gregory Allen Isakoff for his record Evening Machines. Weightlessness, non-gravity Where we somewhere in between I'm a ghost to you, you're a ghost to me Birds have you, Sam It took about a year for the Boulder singer-songwriter to record Evening Machines, which he says is actually the fastest he's ever worked on an album. I tend to really dive into making records. I bleed into those things. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to listen back to my 2018 interview with Isakoff, recorded backstage at Red Rocks, He told me that his lyrics come from unexpected places, like the track Southern Star, which started as an exercise at a poetry retreat. And we cut up these books. I had a a page out of an old paperback, like a sci-fi novel, and a page out of a 
like a hot, steamy romance novel. And we just cut up words, kind of like refrigerator magnets, uh-huh. you know, and just started gluing them down on this page. Oh, my drunken southern star, how you tried to hide in darkness, slip from orbit, now you're dangerously close. So that song was a cut-up. That is to say the lyrics are just random words? The lyrics were built, out of that? Were built from these two pages of, of these two paperback books. You know, the sci-fi book and, and this romance novel. You know, and you kind of mix them together, you know. So you get, like, these steamy planets, you know, or whatever. I'm the star, I'm kind of thirsty, I can see him person, watch him gather in There's another Grammy nominee with Colorado Ties, the funk jam band Lettuce. Lettuce is originally from Boston, but the band recorded their latest project at Colorado Sound Studios in Westminster, and two of the members now call Denver home. Elevate is up for Best Contemporary Instrumental Album, We'd like to showcase their sound with this killer cover of an 80s classic, even though it's not instrumental. nominees Lettuce with their version of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, originally by, do you remember? Tears for Fears. Again, we'll hear more from Colorado nominee Gregory Allen Isakoff tomorrow. And earlier this week, we heard from another Colorado Grammy nominee. He's up for Educator of the Year. There's a Grammy for music educators. You can hear that story at CPR.org. The Grammys air Sunday on CBS. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Most of-